This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Failure. It's something none of us really want to think too much about. And when it happens, as it inevitably does, we often want to move on as quickly as humanly possible. But what can, should, and indeed must we learn from failure? And how can failure go on to spur innovation? Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Samuel West, founder and curator of the Museum of Failure. Samuel, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks for inviting me. So Samuel, first and foremost, why failure? Because failure is infinitely more fascinating than success. I mean, we are force-fed success stories through every sort of media. And quite frankly, I'm sick of it. And I think a lot of other people are sick of it as well. I mean, and on a serious note, we do learn more from failure than we do from success. I mean, as much as you would like to think that watching successful people in whatever domains of life they're successful in and then trying to copy them, that that's going to work. It's, it's quite limited it's in terms of how much we can learn from that. Whereas failures are, are fascinating. We can glean all kinds of information from, that, from failures. So in the museum, you feature certain famous failures in the worlds of innovation and products. But what is it that makes certain innovations fail? Like, is there a particular reason why VHS should have won out over Betamax or Blu-ray over HD DVD? I wish I had an answer, a good answer to your question, because I'd be a millionaire. So the answer is, unfortunately, I, I still have no idea. There are some themes at the at the museum. There's certain themes that sort of predict failure, but they're not. There's not any one answer. This is why failure happens. One of them, for example, is corporate hubris, leadership hubris. They just you know follow themselves and and don't listen to their engineers or their staff or, or consumers. Another theme is, and this is one of my favorite, when a product is overhyped. So most companies uh, they want their their new products to go viral. But the thing is, when they go viral, the expectations increase and the risk of failure drastically increases. So those are two examples of themes at the museum. But honestly, there's millions of reasons why a product can fail. And so is the overhype thing like that's how you end up with Fire Festival happening, where it all looks <laughs> shiny and glossy? Yeah, we, ha we, have, we actually have Fire Festival at the museum. It's, it's, it's difficult to sort of, what kind of physical objects would you... How would you visualize Fire Festival at a museum? But we did it with a, a styrofoam box, some fake food, like plastic food. It's a white piece of bread with some nasty looking cheese on it and a dried up tomato. And then under it says luxury lunch, courtesy of Fire Festival. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Some of the failures that you feature are sort of silly ones. For example, I saw a combination golf club slash urinal that you could use on the course with a little privacy towel sort of situation. And for, listen, for the investors in that, it's a shame they've lost a bit of money. But in the grand scheme of things, no real harm done. However, other failures that you discuss include the Boeing 737 MAX, where two fatal crashes killed 346 people. Could you talk a bit about why that failed and what we really must learn from it? 
So at the museum, there's a wide spectrum of, of failures. So anything, like you said, the silly stuff, the stupid inventions that should never have existed to the more serious failures, which cost people their lives and cost a lot of suffering. And one of those is the, the Boeing Max. It's, an, it's a warning example of a failure is difficult. And if you don't accept failure and not willing to discuss it and have a culture where that's permissible and where you learn from failure, you get these massive catastrophic sort of uh, situations like the Boeing. So I don't have inside information, but if Boeing had a culture where the small failures are accepted and they learn from them, I don't think we would have the, we wouldn't have had the, the Boeing Max. So is failure also something that can often have many authors, as it were? Oh, definitely, especially when it gets as complex as a jet airplane. But usually, I mean, today, in today's market, I mean, the complexity of, of products and services today, it requires huge teams, like multiple teams to sign off before a product is released. Even, even if you look at something as simple as a new flavor of soda at 7-Eleven, it still requires a lot of people to sign off on it and say it's okay. So we like to simplify when things fail. We like to sort of find a scapegoat and say, oh, it's that person or that department's fault. When, when in reality, it's, it's, it's more complex. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult to sort of to learn from failure is that it's complex and it requires some effort. You can't just go out and say, hey, who screwed up? Let's find them and find, find out what they did wrong. It's multiple departments, multiple people. So as failure is something that you clearly want to center and so that we shouldn't necessarily shy away from acknowledging, what do you think, given that it happens to all of us, is a healthy way for human beings, both as individuals and in organizations and stuff, to actually approach failure? I mean, I'm not advocating that people should just sort of recklessly, mindlessly accept failure and go about, you know, taking stupid risks. Um, it's about it's about understanding that that when you try something new, when you push the boundaries for 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 innovation or creativity, whether it's technology, social innovation, when you try something new, the risk is it, it will fail. And if you're not willing to accept that risk, there will be no progress. And a healthy approach to failure is that, that you understand that there's a risk of failure, but you take the risk knowing that if you fail, it'll still be okay. That's why the failures that cost human life and suffering, they're not acceptable, whereas failure that costs a company a couple of million dollars is okay. So a healthy approach to failure is one that you accept it and then try to learn from it when it does happen. And this is equally true for, for corporations as it is for, for us as individuals. Most things that are worthwhile in life, they, they, they involve some, some amount of risk, and that risk is often failure. One of the things that I thought about looking through these products, it's like a, a flash of Marty McFly in Back to the Future, when he finishes doing the very elaborate, uh, overdone solo at the end of Johnny B. Good, and says, guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. And is that a theme to some of the failures that you've encountered? Is, is it the case that some things can just be ahead of their time? As it were? Oh, definitely. That's also one of the themes at the, at the museum of like why products and services fail being ahead of their time or, you know, too late. At one brilliant example of that, one of my favorite is the Sinclair C5. Britain's one of their sort of most famous, infamous uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, innovation failures. And well, I think his name is Sir Sinclair. Sinclair, Sinclair, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So he was way ahead of his time. And this, bearing in mind, you're, to- you're talking to a British person now, so I'm going to oh, be very oh. defensive about that. <laughs> well, it makes it even more interesting. <laughs> Carefully, you tread on my dreams. <laughs> the thing is, it's an absolutely awful, awful electric vehicle. <laughs> but, but you have to understand, he was like 30 years ahead of his time, maybe 40 years ahead of his time. So, I mean, today you say electric scooters everywhere in every city on Earth. And Sinclair was just, he, he was too early. We can laugh at it, the, the, the commercials on YouTube. My favorite is where there's like a 20-minute long video trying to convince people that the Sinclair C5 is safe. And they keep saying, it's safe, it's safe, <laughs> it's safe. <laughs> but I mean, had that come out today, it would be, it'd be different. And, and, I, and I do think that even if we can laugh at it and, and sort of have some fun with it, the reality is someone has to be first. Somebody has to be the first one to push, push the envelope forward. And, and in that case, Sinclair was, was ahead of everyone. And are there any more recent things that you would uh, put into that camp that maybe haven't gone mainstream yet, but you think that maybe people just moved too early? Like thinking, uh, for example, about a product like Google Glass, where there was a lot of very visceral mm. and straight away just no, not having it. But then it seems that over time, the concept of wearable technology and things like that are becoming more mainstream. Uh, absolutely. Um, I remember getting a question early 2000. 2016 at a conference, a prestigious innovation conference, and they asked the question at the end of, in the FNQ. Uh, so, what products on the market today do you think will go into the Museum of Failure? And I was cocky. I was like, well, one thing is for sure, Apple Watch. I cannot understand that stupid thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went off on and on and on about how stupid it is and how it's going to be in the museum. I'm totally wrong. I mean, <laughs> the Apple Watch is wildly successful and so the wearable market has, has, has exploded so that's one example where i'm totally off on something i mean i think a lot of these technologies that are very hyped up like artificial intelligence and uh, blockchain there's a hype and then it doesn't live ai does not live up to the hype at all like it's far 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 away away from meeting any other criteria that you know, any of those expectations. And so is blockchain in many ways. And so they crash, like the interest sort of dies. But there's a lot of sort of promising technology there that we will see refined and 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 improved and, mm-hmm. and be, become useful. So right now I, I have a lot of AI items in the museum and it's, you know, they're, they're stupid. Um, they deserve to be in the museum, but they are sort of the first attempts at making something, bringing something valuable out of that technology. I think that there's, Perhaps an interesting point about, I don't know if it's human nature to draw from what you just said, because when we talk about these technologies that have perhaps overpromised and underperformed Mm. compared to the promise, Mm. however, are still extraordinary on their own terms if it went for that overhype. Like I've, I've read a few people online saying things like, oh, if you take the accelerations in technological progress between... 1870 and 1970, it would be astonishing to anyone from before that. And we've done nothing like that since, apart from the internet. And it's like it's like the the apart from the internet thing is just put in these brackets as a throwaway. And it's like, no, no, this is a pretty redefining no, thing it, of our of our world and our lives. Definitely. Now. I mean, come on. Except for the internet. Well, then they could say, well, from the 1900s to 1970. Uh, ex- apart from electricity, like, hmm. it doesn't make any sense. 
One example of that would be Dr. Watson. Remember that from IBM? The super supercomputer that was supposed to, the AI supercomputer that that would magically read up on all, not not just some, all medical journals, keep up to date with every piece of research out there in real time, and you could basically what the IBM promised was you could basically feed in patient journals into the computer, and it would spit out diagnosis and treatment recommendations. And this was something IBM, this big, you know, renowned company, uh, was selling and hyping up like crazy. And big institutions in the United States and the UK, um, all around the world, jumped on the bandwagon. Turned out it was all hype. There was nothing there. Dr. Watson is not worthless, but very close to it when it, you know, recommends deadly treatment. And then all of a sudden it just died. Like IBM's like, oh, we're out. <laughs> And that's an example of something that has huge potential being overhyped, not delivering, and then it just it gets killed. So now it's that technology has huge promise, but now no one's going to invest in it because, you know, they, we've tried that. It didn't work. But then I suppose the flip side of that is because I believe I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong. So Watson came out of IBM's attempts to learn how to play chess yes, uh, and beat human beings at chess. And then that transformed into Watson and Watson may have been overhyped and not had the impact that it uh, could have. But then, once again, fast forward to the present day, and you've got a company like DeepMind, who had AlphaGo a few years ago, being able to master this game that it was thought unimaginable that computers would be able to do, and now are showing how the ultimate structures of all sorts of different proteins, Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that's uh, expanded the horizons of uh, biological sciences in a way that would have seemed unthinkable before. So perhaps it's that Watson, Watson walked so uh, DeepMind could run. Or... <laughs> I, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's uh, I mean, if we look back on the Sinclair C5 for electric vehicles, there's a lot, I mean, there's always some, somebody is first and some company or some individual is first to sort of launch something, an idea, a new method, new technology, and they... You know, they, they, if they're lucky and they get things right, they can be rewarded for it, but it, most often it goes wrong. And then someone else comes and capitalizes on it. That's what I think about with, with the museum of failure. Instead of sort of thinking that we need to embarrass these companies or these individuals, we should elevate it. We should, we should put their, their, their ambitions on a, on a pedestal and shine a light on it and try to learn from it. And, and they, they deserve credit for being the first. I, I don't like the overhyped ones, like the like IBM. I don't like it when, when these greedy companies, you know, I don't like that stuff. But, but I, I like the principle there of 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 celebrating when people take that take those risks. I think that there are all sorts of different ways in which these risks can be taken. Right, there there, there are risks that the individual can take. There are risks that the uh, that corporations can take, and there are also risks in terms of investing for future innovation that uh, governments and states can take, right? And it seems like the the acceptance of failure in that thing is, is it's a lot more harshly judged by people because they'll say that, oh, the government wasted X amount on this thing that didn't pan out. But then you also look at the fact that a uh, lot of the early stage funding for Tesla was provided by the US government exactly. uh, that has now ended up being a tremendous success. So I, I wondered mm. if you could uh, discuss how we might weigh the sort of risks that we should be taking to promote innovation in, in the public sector as well as the private sector. It's an excellent question. So even more extreme, 
I've worked with charity organizations where they are spending money that people donated for a specific cause. They are t- most charity organizations. They are terrified of failing at something because then they they're harshly criticized. Hmm. So the ironic part of this is the paradox that if they don't innovate, they are probably doing the wrong things. So they they if anybody needs to innovate, it's definitely them. And to innovate means to sometimes fail. So I think that's the extreme uh, sort of end of the spectrum uh, compared to sort of. Uh, private corporations. But in public sector, same, it's the same principle. Unless there's innovation happening there to adapt to a new society, to, new, to the new environment, then, then they are spending money in the, on the wrong things, which is a total waste. I would rather see a government spend and, 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 and fail uh, with projects and continually improve their services than just stagnate and, just, and, and, and underperform, <laughs> underdeliver just to play it safe. And we see that society is changing. The environment is, I mean, drought, UK, drought, Europe, things are changing. We need to try find new solutions. And I think about it quite a bit about how, you know, not just Europe, but the entire global society, we're dealing with huge problems, uh, income inequality, uh, climate change. There's not one solution that's going to save us all. There's thousands of solutions of which most of them will fail. And we still need to spend money and time and effort on those. And the people who do take those risks, who do suggest ideas for these, they should be rewarded. They shouldn't be ostracized or, or, or you know, discriminated against because they took a risk and it didn't work out. So I, I, think, it, I, think, I think embracing failure, learning from it, and being willing to take risks is much greater than just a new electronic device or a new IT service. It's 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 about us as humans on this on this planet. There's I I don't know whether it's an apocryphal or real quote from Thomas Edison where he said, "I've not failed. I've just found ten thousand ways that didn't work." And I think that we, we've all heard stories about you know the the inventor who tried a whole bunch of times it didn't work out then on the 10,000 and first <laughs> attempt got it right and made their millions the flip side of that is that you never hear of the person who actually doesn't the 10,000 and first time also doesn't work <laughs> out and nor does uh, anything and i think that for anyone involved in any sort of like creative or entrepreneurial endeavor a really difficult thing but necessary thing is also knowing when to fold and knowing how to Mm. avoid sunk cost and that sort of thing what would you say to that this is also an excellent question because it's something that larger corporations are dealing with that once they start a project invest a lot of money into it they have teams and leadership they're in charge of these 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 projects there's a lot of prestige involved and money And when it doesn't work out, instead of killing the project and saying, oh, well, we tried and it didn't work out, they keep it alive on artificial respiration. And that ends up costing even more money and and failing even on a grander scale. And, And this then makes it even more difficult to get other projects started because you have a bunch of rotten uh, innovation projects, you know, draining resources. So this is a problem. And this is also a problem in the public sector. So if we were better at accepting failure and killing projects when they're not going anywhere, it would open up for more experimentation, exploration on on more promising avenues. So yes, we need to be much better at killing ideas or killing projects when they don't work out. And on another note, 
I'm the museum of failure. I often get asked, can you come and give a speech about failure and how important it is to fail so that you can be successful? Or can you come and speak about how failure is important for success? And I always like feel like ah, I don't really want to do that because because I don't I, I I hate when failure is sort of forced into the narrative of success. Like sometimes failure is failure. Period. There is nothing happening afterwards. There is not Edison's attempt one thousand and two. You know, and that type of failure also needs to be appreciated. Yeah, sometimes it's just a golf club you can piss in. <laughs> exactly, and that's the end of it. So finally, Samuel, what is your favorite failure? I hate this question <laughs> because I mean it depends on my mood. <laughs> so usually I like the failures that have like really interesting stories behind them. I mean, there's another British example with the Amstrad emailer, another famous, maybe not so well known failure in the UK about this this device that Sir Alan Sugar he was obsessed with, like a device that was incomprehensibly stupid and it ultimately cost cost i mean the company folded not entirely because of this but mainly that's an interesting story because it's so nuanced and it's, there's there's so many sort of characters involved but it's also complex to explain and uh, if you're listening lord sugar we firstly apologize that samuel <laughs> dissed your emailer and we secondly apologize that he called you <laughs> sir and not lord we know that you get very angry about that <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> I'm, I've been scolded. I, I accept it. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Samuel West, thank you for joining me in the bunker with the Museum of Failure. We wish you every success. Thank you. The Museum of Failure is a touring exhibition currently in Calgary, Canada, but you can also visit the museum virtually at museumoffailure.com. Thank you for joining us on the Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favorite podcast app and you can get every edition of The Bunker early plus merchandise and more when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese with assistant production by Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey, group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.